welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Welcome to this conversation with Pejman Mertababai. Pejman is an Associate Dean of Industry Partnerships and an Associate Professor of User Experience Research in the Faculty of Business and Information Technology at University of Ontario Institute of Technology. Pejman's story spans Iran, the UK and Canada as he discusses his path from master's to working in industry to coming back to do a PhD, and a PhD that ended up being closely tied up with a startup, and then his experiences moving into a tenure-track position immediately post-PhD, well, in in fact, before his PhD, and then later taking a a break to work back in industry before working out that academia is in fact what he wants to do. What's particularly interesting in his story is how strategic he's been in exploring his options and making decisions, leading him to getting tenure in really quick time. And what else is interesting is how he's always seeking feedback and open to learn. There'll be a part two of this conversation that I'll release as a separate podcast, where he further talks about the uncertainty of life then in post-tenure and how he's navigated these new choices as well as what he's learning moving into more faculty leadership roles. I'm sure you'll enjoy this first conversation and encourage you to come back and listen to part two when it comes out. Peshman, thanks for joining me and it's great that you're here and we're actually taking advantage of you on your passing through Vienna on your way to a conference to catch up. Thanks so much for having me here. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here and talk to you. As you know... We, yeah. I was going to say I'm a big fan of this podcast series and I'm very honored to be part of it now. So thanks for this opportunity. And I think you've probably got some interesting stories to tell because you have shifted in different countries and you've also sort of recently gone through tenure process and thinking about what next. And we should also disclose, just in the interest of, you know, um, setting out the context is that we first met probably in 2005-ish, do we think? So, yeah, so I think, so I did a master at Sussex University and I think it was either 2005 or 2006 and HCI was an elective course for mm. me, which I thankfully took <laughs> and I really liked the topic, so that kind of changed the whole uh, kind of career path for me. Because uh, you were doing business, weren't you, or something? Yeah, so it's actually quite interesting uh, because my undergrad was in uh, computer hardware engineering, so I have an engineering background, and then I worked for a year or so as a, a network administrator, so I worked in a big, big bank uh, managing the network. Mm. After a year, I found the job quite boring so mm. I couldn't kind of continue there mm. uh, so I decided to go and do my master uh, so 
And you're from Iran. Yeah. So this this was working in a bank in, in Iran. Iran yeah. yeah. So but I, I I wanted to do my uh, my kind of continue my education somewhere abroad. So uh, somehow by chance I ended up at Sussex University. Uh, I applied for two programs. One of them was uh, I think it was uh, control engineering, so hardware and control engineering, and the master of IT for for commerce. Uh, which I ended up selecting. I got admitted to both programs, but then I decided to do the IT for uh, for commerce. Uh, and HCI was one of the courses there, so yeah, I took the HCI that that I was teaching, and yeah. I hadn't been lecturing very long either at that point, <laughs> if I remember. Yeah, no, but I I found the course really useful, and I. I didn't know what I want to do in mm. terms of education. Like as a kid, uh, and so it's actually funny because I was thinking about it. As a kid, I was always fascinated by computer game, so I was playing loads of computer game. But I never thought of it as a as Research a as a career. Yes, yes. Uh, and the closest thing to kind of do something with computer was to study either software engineering or hardware engineering. So I did hardware engineering and then networking and then. I knew I don't want to do something like hardware engineering anymore. Mm. So IT for e-commerce kind of made sense. And then HCI, it kind of, it resonated with me very well mm. because it wasn't, it, it was something that I felt that my skill set kind of matched yeah. to, to that. And HCI is human-computer interaction, yeah. if anyone isn't familiar. And that, mm. So it's interesting the ways in which we, you know, Recognizing things that do resonate with yeah. us and following that heart. And then yeah. you came back to Sussex some years later to start your PhD. Yeah, so after I, after my master, I worked uh, for, I think for a year and a half. Uh, I did some teaching as a sessional instructor uh, in two colleges and I worked as a... Is this in the UK? No, back in Iran. Back in Iran. And then I worked as a UX consultant for a company for, for a few months. Uh, but the teaching part, I think, got me excited about doing a PhD and kind of think of an academic mm. career. So mm. I applied again for a PhD program mm. uh, then got accepted, uh, postponed it for a year because I was doing job in Iran, and then I started the PhD. And that's all also interesting because originally uh, I wanted to a study is something to do with uh, like a technology to support uh, users with visual impairment. Uh, but then I ended up working with Graham uh, to do game evaluation mm. mostly. So mm. that's how I got to be a games user researcher. And that was also, because I can, I can bring some background knowledge as sure. well, which is unusual for an interview, but... If I if I reflect on that as well, you know, again, just that thing about serendipity and opportunities and taking advantage of them. Graham um, had 
recently started at Sussex and had brought an interest in games and it wasn't an area that was a big area before he came. And so it worked really well that he would have a new PhD student as as well. And then he ended up being very entrepreneurial and starting up a company um, associated with his faculty position or as a part aside on the side from his faculty position. So you got to play out your PhD you know, in both, well, what, in the university technically, but more practically in the company? Yeah, exactly. So, and I think I was very fortunate to have that opportunity because uh, I feel that my PhD setup was relatively unique and which has influenced or has influenced my career paths, basically. Mm. So, being able to do a research, but on uh, real cases, real kind of commercial triple 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 a games uh, that kind of build my like change my understanding of how to approach mm. uh, research questions and how to communicate the result back to the uh, stakeholders and uh, it was a really interesting setup yeah actually it was wasn't it because that um that wasn't just doing research for research's sake, but you were actually doing contracts you know, for companies engaging in game player research for them for practical purposes. Yeah, basically it, it was, I would say, applied research. Yeah. So, and what, what was kind of at the time challenging, but now I kind of benefited from it as mm. well, was that many of the academic paper available, uh, we couldn't apply them uh, to the to the commercial setup that we have. Because uh, they were too academic, they didn't understand enough of the real context or why? I think the problem they were they were answering, I would say it was more on the academic academic side uh, through uh, lens of like experiment design. Mm where the what we needed to do was more on a, like a formative evaluation mm-hmm. and usability studies uh, which is has roots in academia but it's not necessary uh, like you need to kind of try to apply them uh, like read those paper but think of how would you would apply mm-hmm. them to to your mm-hmm. to your setting which is not often clear in the paper on how it would be applied they are often focused on a very particular problem that they're trying to address. So did that make the PhD, I mean, looking back now, obviously it was successful and you got the PhD and it's it's been well received, but at the time, did it feel stressful that it wasn't so clear how to apply it or how did that play out? Mm. I, so it, I didn't feel that I was stressed mm. and I think maybe the reason behind that was the volume of testing that we were running. And I think now like supervising my own students, sometimes the stress is coming from thinking that this study that they're running has to be the best study. Uh, I didn't have that stress. I knew that, you know, we have another game coming next week and another one the week mm-hmm. after. So I had loads of opportunity to iterate on them a study design that I was thinking of or just practice it like even when we uh, we had all the lab and equipment there so mm. I could just practice my approaches 
and be more comfortable with with that. So the and the, obviously like the the supervisor is very supportive as well. Uh, the we were trying to do something relatively new, uh, so that was also kind of added a bit of a stress. But we we were we we both have that understanding that no one has done this before, so yeah. there is no uh, golden kind of recipe to follow. Yeah. Uh, so it it kind of, as you said it it worked out quite well. Uh, I'm. I'm very proud of what we did mm. uh, in, in, in those, with those projects. So uh, in the trade-off in the other way, so it sounds like that was a really amazing experience actually working for real companies and, and, and having to work in a different way of these very fast cycles and knowing that there's going to be another game to test next week. And that's quite different to how traditional research often yeah. works, I think. Did it create tensions then when it came to suddenly turn it into a formal piece of academic writing mm. as a thesis? I think at, at at some point it felt like a job that I was doing and I was learning a lot. Uh, but I think at the end of my second year, I tried to basically, I printed a page for each project I worked on mm. and what I learned from them and I put them all on the floor. So I kind of tried to look to see what's the connection in there. And oh, so that's interesting. What, so you didn't have a clear no, focus not, at no, the beginning. No, like, I, I mean, I think I didn't know what the story I would be telling, but mm. there were a couple of things that was clear that that's like I knew the focus going to be on video games. I knew that I'm looking to use a physiological measure as a method. Uh, I knew that I'm interested in figuring out how to better uh, communicate the result of testing to, to developers. So I knew some of the stuff, but mm. I, I wasn't sure was. how the story would, yeah. be, would be. And yeah. again, it, I think mid, in the middle of my second, uh, end of my second year, that's where... Uh, like I looked at everything I've done in the first two years and then I saw the connection between uh, how we try to visualize and communicate mm. The, mm. those complex, basically, recordings to, to developer. And that's where the last year of my PhD, it was more focused on doing studies on that, that area. Right. So uh, I, did a, I did a couple of prototypes in terms of how to visualize this data then I did the interview with some game developers to see how they perceive those. Mm. Uh, so based on their comment, then I tried to make the tool and then I ran an experiment the way that we do it in academic, yeah, yeah, academic experiment. <laughs> uh, to have a, mm. like a nice paper mm. to finish it. And it's, finish that's sort of a, a nice reassuring story that you can... And this was a three-year academic program, a PhD program, whereas some other universities, countries have longer programs. So, you know, like only only sort of finding your story or recognizing your story mm-hmm. at the end of the second year is yeah. a good two-thirds of the so way. Again, and, I feel, and you did. Yeah, I feel I was very lucky, and I think that ability to run loads of studies mm-hmm. that that had a big big mm-hmm. part. Uh, I didn't include all the studies in my mm. thesis. Like yeah. I think I ran maybe I close to maybe 30, 40 studies. Yeah. I included four of them in the thesis. So I had the luxury of 
basically looking and picking the relevant one and including them in the in the thesis, which is not a common approach in no. PhD kind of training. So no, it's but it's the reality for many people, isn't it? I mean, in terms of at least. Not everyone has that textbook PhD yeah. progress of a yeah. you know, clear research question and well-planned progress over three years. Yeah. But was it a bit stressful at the end of around you know, towards the end of that second year until you found that focus, or was it just were you relaxed and confident that you would find a focus, and it was just a matter of doing the work? Uh, Do you remember? I don't think I was ever confident <laughs> that much, but uh, and the whole experience is stressful. So it's not that I was like having fun. <laughs> I mean, I was having fun, but it wasn't that I was like so relaxed and and chill. But uh, again, the I think so. Again, the, having being able to run the studies and uh, Sussex University, as you know, at the time uh, we had a very supportive. Uh, group uh, so that that helped a lot yes. uh, I had uh, basically students that were doing a PhD with me so we could share stories uh, I benefited a lot from uh, from Ben uh, that uh, I was able to go and talk to him whenever I wanted and this is Ben de Boulay who yeah so he, he would run these sessions, he would call them surgery session or academic surgery session. So basically open office door for anyone to go and talk, uh-huh. ask him anything. Uh, so I spent lots of time with him and kind of he reassured me that this is okay, you know, you're going to find the story that you want to tell, don't panic. Yeah. And, uh, and also guide, kind of guided me on how to approach this, like the idea of kind of printing and everything I've done on one page and looking at them and trying to figure out the connection between yeah, them. Yeah, that sounds like a really good strategy because yeah. yeah, yeah, so. it gets it out and visual. and. Yeah. You know, but I knew yeah. that I need a big, if you like, experiment yeah. to, to do at the end. Yeah. Uh, I The other maybe a stressful piece was that we were, I was under lo- kind of quite a lot of pressure to publish uh, not necessary for my PhD program, but because we were presenting what we do in industry conferences. So I didn't want anyone else to publish that, that work or that methodology before I publish it. So, mm. uh, I had to, every, every little bit, I would write, write a little paper and publish it. Uh, so that 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 publication piece, I think that 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 it gave me a little stress. Again, it wasn't a required portion of the program. It just making sure that I would be the one who published mm, about yes. this topic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you went from Sussex to Canada. Yeah. Before you actually had finished your PhD, what? Yeah. So. Uh, so from Iran to the UK to Canada. Yeah. I never thought I would live in Canada. Mm. Uh, and I love it there. So mm. It was also interesting. I always thought I would end up somewhere in Europe. Uh, but I, I did, a, I think, three, four months, like a visiting research position at the university that I am in at the moment. Uh, and... At the time that I was there, it was my kind of third year of PhD. 
they had an open open position. Uh, so I kind of joined the interviews just to watch what's going on. Uh, it was a failed search. They couldn't fill the position. Mm-hmm. And then they reposted the position kind of towards me finishing my four months visiting researching researcher job there. Uh, I thought I would apply for the position. And that's the only academic position I ever applied. <laughs> the The intention was for me to get some experience mm-hmm. and kind of knowing that I never going to live in Canada. Mm-hmm. I just like, okay, I'm going to try this and then I'm going to get some experience. Um, then lots of things happen, <laughs> uh, which I'm not going to bore you with that, but I ended up, uh, they offered me the position. Mm-hmm. The I think the big part of that was also my unique, I would say, experience because uh, they we had we have a game program. Uh, they were building the kind of HCI UX part of the program, and I was coming with experience of conducting real projects, real real studies on more than like thirty commercial games, uh, and plus experience of starting that kind of a spin-off studio at Sussex University. Yes. Uh, and that was very much in line with what the dean at the time uh, had a vision right. for the for the for the for that position. So I got the offer, uh, and so it much was, for experience and never living in Canada. Yeah, it was unexpected, uh, especially because the hiring process was really long. So I think I applied in like October. Mm. I got the offer in April. So I. Uh, I, I, like, I thought I won't have that job, but they offered me at the, at the end. Uh, and it was quite a difficult decision to see if we want to move. Because uh, you have a partner. Yeah, so. Yeah, so she was, she's, she was working full time at, at Brighton University at mm-hmm. the time. Uh, and, uh, I had a, almost like a full time job at, at the, uh, at Graham's company. At Graham's company. Yeah. This is Brian um, McAllister. I'll put yeah. the link. And it it was we had a nice, comfortable life in the UK. Mm-hmm. I, I talked to Graham that you know I got this positions offer and asked for his advice. He said I can always go back and work at his company, uh, and if I don't get it, I may regret. And as when you finish your PhD, I think. The immediate goal usually is to go for ten-year track position. Uh, so this was a quite a unique situation because I didn't have a PhD. Most people do like finish mm, their PhD, yes. do a few years of yes. postdoc, and then go to a ten-year track position. Yeah. So uh, I I decided I decided to go. I think I had a chat with you as well at the time mm. about do, going to a ten-year track position and not doing a postdoc. Uh, what swung it for you in the end? What was the deciding factor? So I think the the salary was a good deciding the factor. <laughs> uh, the also that knowing that I kind of have a bit of a safety net that I could go back to the UK yeah. uh, if if I want to, uh, as well as. Uh, the position was something that I was really excited about. So joining a mm. faculty that has a game development program 
and value HCI research. So that was very important for me. Uh, as, and uh, I think like that not doing a postdoc because although I think there are some disadvantages of not doing a postdoc, uh, for example, people who do postdoc, they usually have a few years more of experience, few more papers, and usually if... If we think citation is important, higher citation number before they start their uh, tenure track position. Where I went into that uh, after only three and a half years of starting my PhD, basically. Uh, Without a PhD. Without a PhD. (laughs) PhD finished. (laughs) Yeah. And how long after you started did you end up submitting a PhD? Because often that can just slow down... No, Progress. so I, because once I knew that I accepted the position, I put like 100% focus on writing up the yeah. PhD. Uh, I, I got my PhD defended in October and I started my position in July. So okay. only a few months oh, after. So I submitted the PhD in August, defended in October. Uh, I, I I was a little bit strategic there because I didn't get m- many correction, but I didn't submit my correction. I waited a little bit because as part of my offer for the new job, there were this condition that if I finish before January, the first year would consider as part of my 10-year track time. But if I finish after January, I would be given one extra year if I need. So I did all the fixes, but I didn't submit my thesis until like January 11 or something. Mm-hmm. So Just I to would, give you a little bit more yeah, exactly. camp breathing room for yeah. the tenure process. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that was so, very strategic. Yeah, so I did that. Uh, but back to your question, mm. I finished it very yeah. soon, like a few yeah. months after. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's like a 10-year track mm. in North America. It's... Uh, as you know, it's very demanding position. Mm. So I'm uh, teaching and research and starting a lab. And so I'm glad that I did all of those, mm. uh, did all the things with my PhD. And I should also mention that my faculty, uh, the dean at the time, was very supportive. So uh, she didn't assign me any teaching load for the first uh, term. So I could finish my PhD and uh, write the big grant that we need to do. It's called Discovery Grant. So I didn't have any teaching load for the first basically six months so I could do all of those and it was like extremely useful. Good. Did you negotiate that or was it offered? No. So again, I, I it was the only job I applied so I didn't negotiate anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so it was, she was just nice that, and understanding. Yes. Yeah. So she knew yeah. that she was very experienced, so she knew what she's getting into. Yeah. So she provided the support that yeah. I didn't even know I needed. So That's good having a dean like that. Yeah. That's someone who's taking a longer-term view and investing yeah. in you being part yeah. of the university you know, in the longer term, which um, for not wanting to live in Canada. And how many yeah. years is, is it since you've been there now? So I joined the University of Ontario in yeah. 2013, so it's now yeah. six years. And you did get your tenure. When was that? Okay, so... Because <laughs> so that was a, a really quick process, having negotiated your extra year, if I remember. Yeah, so I didn't take that extra year. I actually submitted my application early. <laughs> so, 
I I did so I joined in 2013. I submitted my tenure application in 2017. Uh, I could wait until 2020, basically. So wow. I submitted early and I, I got it approved. Uh, and that's something I kind of tease people, and I'm kind of proud of it. Like I basically start, started my PhD in 2009, and I got mm. my tenure in 2000. Yeah. 18, so less than 10 years from starting a PhD to getting a 10 year. Yeah, yeah. That's I'm not. <laughs> so how did you do that? What were the key things that were important for getting there? Mm, I think, so as a UX researcher, it comes with some benefits. Mm. And the benefit is you try to understand the stakeholders for everything you do. Mm-hmm. So I I wanted, like even when I was a PhD student, I went in my first or second year, I went to sessions on how to defend the Viva, what your thesis need to look like. So kind of knowing what I need to prepare myself. Yeah. And I think in my first year at university or second year in my 10 year track position, I went to a workshop that the university ran on how to apply for 10 years. Uh, and people laughed at me. It was like, oh, you just joined last year. Why are you here? These are for people who have been here for five years. But I think when you are in your fifth year, it's too late to kind yes. of try to understand what you need to do. Yes. Like, and so at first or second year, I mean, first year, is it was mostly on survival mode. But, survival mode. Yeah, but second year, I knew what I need to do to, to get my tenure. And I, I had a very clear... I would say a strategy to mm. to try to achieve those those things that were needed. That's very strategic. Yeah. So that you could be more confident that you were directing your efforts into what were the things that were going to count or matter yeah. for that process. Yeah. And plus, I I think one thing I do a lot is ask for feedback. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I remember that I had a couple of meetings with the associate dean at the time just to kind of show her what I'm doing and see what she thinks about like progress to our tenure as well as with the dean. Uh, and I think the important things with feedback is to listen to them, listen carefully, mm-hmm. but not necessarily do all of them. <laughs> So it's okay, explain up to the, that, so explain that a little bit more. As a, as a researcher, as a person, you would, it's good to, to get feedback, but it's also important to make your decision. And sometimes you may not listen to the feedback and that's okay. Or you listen, because you did say listen. Yeah, you listen, but you but don't you, act on you, them. Yeah. You own the decision about whether to act on Exactly. Them. So you may, you listen carefully, you think about them and reflect, mm-hmm. but you may not act on them mm-hmm. because ultimately you have all the information, like you at the time, it's your mm-hmm. decision and you know, mm-hmm. you need to, you need to know what's good for you. Is there a particular example mm-hmm. of something that you did that or didn't do that was advised that worked out well? Yes. Yeah, so well? I think... In 2016, mm-hmm. uh, we started uh, editing the games user research book, and 
the advice I got from the, the dean at the time was don't put your effort on doing the book. Uh, because it's not peer-reviewed? Was that the rationale? No, know? it's like that it's, it, it takes lots of time to okay, produce a book. Yeah. And uh, it's good to have it for your tenure, but it's not really necessary. Like you can get through a tenure process without a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, if you need it for course, you can just like print papers and take them to your class rather than you know, make a book about it. Uh, but I really wanted to have that book. I really wanted to make that book. And I thought it's, again, a strategic decision at the time that the I felt that there is a need for the field to have a book on the topic, and I knew it's going to be a popular book. So uh, we, we went, I went ahead and we did the book. Mm-hmm. So I didn't listen. I, I listened to the feedback, but I didn't act on it. That's probably one of the bigger ones, but there are many smaller mm. cases. Like, is there anything that you that didn't work? So that was the decision that clearly worked out well, because this has been a very important book for the field. I mean, um, we hope so. <laughs> we hope it seems so. And are there any other decisions where you, in hindsight, go, oh, they were right? I would say majority of the suggestions were right. Uh the like another decision again I try to listen kinda is you know like in our, in our domain I try to publish at Kai conference and we accept that that's one of the main places to publish and we often value that even better than some of the journals mm. uh, so from the dean's perspective she was like although you submit and publish at this what you say is the best conference, but uh, to get through your tenure, you need a couple of journal publication. So try to, you know, kind of have a few journal publication. Don't submit everything to mm. the conference. Yeah, and that's a that's a suggestion that I I listen to, uh, and I try to publish few journal papers uh, before I go up for tenure. Uh, the there are other things that. Like one, one key suggestion that I think it was very important uh, was because I was working at, as a team, we were it's a few of us working as a team, uh, and I was the younger <laughs> or youngest. Uh, so one suggestion was I need to establish myself as an independent, re- mm-hmm. independent researcher. Mm-hmm. So I should not, I should try to work with other people or have, a, have papers that I'm only author, I only author that with my students. Uh, and in, in tenure process, that's very important to show that you are able to uh, supervise your students and write a paper without getting other senior researchers involved. So at the time that I was preparing for my tenure, for two years, I tried to uh, specifically not to collaborate with people that I used to collaborate, mm-hmm. just to make sure that I can show in my file that I'm I'm an independent researcher. Mm. So, and those are, those are things that I learned from attending that kind of yeah. how to submit a yeah. tenure application workshop early because if I would go there a year before, I didn't have time to be able to adjust my, my, my approach. 
And if these were people that you normally collaborated with, did you have to have then an explicit discussion with them to say, I'm not ignoring you, this is yeah, just I, what I, I need to do? Yeah, we, like I did, I basically told them yeah. that uh, although I enjoy working with you, but I'm not going to supervise this student with you and I'm not going to include you in this paper uh, because I need to show that independence mm. in my work as well. And did they understand that? Yeah. Okay. Mm. They didn't. You didn't lose any friendships no, or no, collaborators no, no. because of that. No. Yeah. No. Interesting discussions to have, aren't they? Because yeah. the work that we do is so fundamentally collaborative in so many ways. Yes. Um, and yet, all of you know these sorts of review processes, yeah. and, and you can understand that the review process is also wanting to reassure themselves that you know. It, yes. Yeah, so I are, think. Good researcher. Again, I don't know if it's in all universities, but there are a couple of things that is was very important for my university. One one of them was the independence in research, and I think that should probably mm. ap- apply everywhere. Mm. The other thing that they value a lot was kind of a cross faculty collaboration. Mm. So I I purposefully joined projects that. Uh, was with other with faculty members from other faculties to make sure that I have those, that I can show that my research is relevant to a faculty of social science, my research is relevant to a faculty of education. So I, uh, so knowing those, I, yeah. I went after those collaborations yeah. and I asked people to involve me in their grant application and things yeah. like that. So again, very strategic and also yeah. showing the value of having that information early to yeah. let it shape. Um, so and it was clearly successful given that you were able to get tenure early. Yeah. You you also did a lot of continued a lot of work with industry, didn't you, in different ways? Yes. Yeah. So that's also interesting a story. So in two thousand fifteen, kinda of after finishing my first year, as I said this was more on a survival mm-hmm. mode. I kinda of wasn't sure if academic job is is good, something good for me. Why what was it about the first year and, and survival mode that <laughs> Made you get just the yeah just the I think a stress from suddenly and it's actually I wanted to mention that here and it it's clear it was the same point that many other people that mm. interview brought it up I think there is no real training to transition from PhD to faculty member and that's. Uh, that basically caught me. Like mm. at the PhD, you kind of you are expected in most cases to do everything yourself. So you are designing your own study, you are setting your own lab, you recruit your own participants, you analyze your data, you write your paper, and all of them obviously uh, under your under your you know guidance of the supervisor. But you are doing everything because it has to be your work. Yeah. Uh, Going to a faculty position with the mindset that I'm doing everything is, I think, the fastest way to burn out. <laughs> and yeah. So, uh, so this, so I was trying, like, I was trying to teach. I was trying to set up my lab. I was, and by set up my lab, I mean like I was doing cabling, like computers, and like oh, doing literally, it, yeah, like literally installing like I don't know operating system on computers, like everything. I thought I have to do myself. Uh, so supervising the students again, writing papers. So at at the time, it felt it felt too much, and and I was like, oh, I 
I've, I missed a bit of, again, moving, moving countries also meant that I lost all the industry connection that I had in the, in the UK. Mm. Uh, so I felt that I really want to go back and work for, for, a, for a industry again. Uh, again, my dean was, was very supportive. So I told her that, uh, I, I, I got a opportunity to work for a company. Uh, and I told my dean that, you know, I want to kind of go and do that job. Uh, and she agreed to give me time to, uh, basically buy out my teaching mm-hmm. so I could go and work in, in a game company. Uh, so I moved to Montreal from Toronto. Uh, Another move. Well, it was it was within <laughs> within the country, so it wasn't no, that fast. Still, yeah. So I I I moved to Montreal. I started a position as a UX director for a gaming uh, gaming company. Uh, gaming. It 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 was like an in, investor uh, or incubator for mm-hmm. indie game. Uh, but not only investing money, but also to provide support for 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 the project. So my job was to uh, kind of oversee all the UX uh, research needs. Uh, soon after I started that position, last few months after, I realized I missed my academic <laughs> life. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so what what? <laughs> With, with that distance, what did you miss? What did you realize you missed? Uh, I think the main thing I missed, and I think that again comes up as one of the, I think is the best advantage of our job, is that uh, flexibility that yeah. we have uh, and the freedom of doing the research the way you want to do and mm. the way you believe it's the best way of doing Whereas in the company going, you didn't have that flexibility or freedom or constraint. So I so the working hours that's something that I suddenly I especially as a PhD student they were not very clear like a nine to five job mm. like it was any time that we had a project mm. I would go mm. gain as a faculty position I'm not kind of nine to five person I just sometimes I spend I stay until eight nine sometimes but I also go like late at ten so it's like very flexible hours. But then the company was like, okay, you need to be here at 8.30 and you need to stay until 5. And I couldn't like literally sit for 8.30 mm-hmm. to 5. Uh, so that, that kind of, I realized that, okay, that's something that I really miss. Uh, I, I missed that opportunity to kind of do the projects the way I wanted to do. Uh, I miss my office. Mm. So I, I'm very social, but I also need my own office that I can close the door and focus on the stuff that I had to do. So the, the company had the open, open office layout and I like hated it so much. But, uh, I, I did that for like four or five months. And that was the initial agreement that I would, uh, kind of buy out a semester of teaching, go do this thing. And then I will figure out what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I, told the company that this is not, not this isn't something that I like to do uh, going forward but I am still very much interested in working with unreal projects so uh, rather than being full time I tend to be a like an on-call consultant uh, so which, you renegotiated your role yeah, in the company yeah basically yeah. so uh, so they didn't hire anyone to replace me yeah. I basically 
stayed as the advisor for all the companies we invested in around 20 game companies so i stayed as a advisor for them i worked with many of them through different uh, research projects mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it kind of gave me that the, the connection and the yeah. uh, the industry links that i i lost after moving to canada so uh, like looking back my partner didn't like that experience because we had to like move houses and stuff but i think that was really important for my career both in terms of knowing what i want to do and also having all my connection backs yeah all my connections back yeah. yeah yeah so then you went back into the university yeah so i basically full time yeah so i just went back and mm. And at the time, things start kind of working out a bit better. So we bought a house and we felt more at home in Canada. Mm. We got our kind of permanent residency mm. uh, kind mm-hmm. of happening. So we could kind of uh, live there like normal people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because on a work permit, it's very complex to, to move to a, company, yeah. to a country with a work permit. There are, there are many things you can do with a work yeah. permit. So, so buying those, your house is a story as well, though, isn't it? I mean, so, so there are two. Oh, there are two houses. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's the first one that I... So the story with the first one uh, is that we were living there and then we were renting the place. And when I went to Montreal, I basically subletted the place. Uh, but then at some while I was there, the landlord called me that he needs the money and he has to sell the, the house. So I had one... He gave me two options, either buy it or, or move. And I really couldn't move because it wasn't possible. Because so. you're in Montreal. <laughs> yeah. So I said, okay, let's buy the house. So we just bought the house that we were, we were living in. And then and we lived there until uh, like six months ago where we moved to a new house. Mm-hmm. And I guess you are more interested in the and second, the, the second, second house. Because you were just saying before we started recording about a, a dream that you'd always had about the sort of house you wanted to live in. Yeah, so, that... so yeah, I, I always wanted to live uh, on the lake. And I thought living in Canada and not living on a lake is not a good idea. So there are so many lakes there. So I <laughs> thought I should be able to find a house mm-hmm. that, that's on the lake. Uh, I was also... Uh, Again, as you know, I listened to all these podcasts and I was very, uh, I was I connected to uh, Sal's uh, interview where he talked about how leaving a bit further from the university gave him the opportunity to uh, kind of have a few days that he's at home and focus on his research and few days that he's at university and focus more on the teaching and admin stuff. And the ability to kind of live in a countryside and then do cool stuff mm. in between things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, re- I really loved that idea. So I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. Uh, so I looked for a house that's on the lake and uh, I, I moved there. And I don't do it in the extent as... Uh, As like going like do extreme exercises, but mm. I do do like some 
few few times a day I do take like some 20 20 30 minutes walk and That's then good. that kind of helps me to think about the projects that I'm working and things I want to do so those are kind of thinking rocks that's, like. that's good <laughs> yeah and it's a great strategy yeah and i used to hate waking up early in the morning but now when i wake up at 6 a.m i have a beautiful sunrise at the lake so it's actually provided some motivation for waking up early so, and uh, and i enjoy the drive to university yeah. so i think again it was mentioned that that could be a time that I can do things that I want to without anyone bothering me. So mm. uh, I usually talk to my friends. Uh, I call them, mm-hmm. uh, or I listen to podcasts, listen to uh, audio books. So that's been very useful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's productive. It's not just commute time. It's it's you time that you you're yeah. able to use in different yeah. ways. Yeah, and I think. Again, I'm not commuting through like busy highways. It's a country yeah. road that I, I drive. Uh, so I'm not stuck in traffic. I just basically drive and uh, listen to things. So that's an interesting, I mean, apart from sort of fulfilling a childhood dream, it's, it sounds like it's been a good lifestyle decision as well as benefiting your work, has it? In the, like having the thinking walks or being able to carve out particular spaces or days for doing different types of work? Mm. So I think this semester, the first semester that I'm living in the new house, mm. I I made a mistake by deciding to stay at home Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and only going to campus on Thursday and Friday. It wasn't a good idea. <laughs> uh, and my approach, I basically block out time in my calendar so no one can book book me into anything, and. Uh, Suddenly, everyone was like, what's going on? Why we cannot book a meeting with you? <laughs> so, so for next semester, I think I'm going to change it uh, to mm. kind of Monday, Wednesday, Friday on campus, and Tuesday and yeah. Thursday at home. Yeah. So it takes some time just to work out what yeah. is a good rhythm to yeah. how to make that work. Yeah. yeah. So people are usually okay to wait for one day until yeah. they can come and talk to you. But if yeah. you tell them that... Oh, it's Monday. Come and see me on Thursday. <laughs> Thursday. They won't yes. like it. <laughs> yes. Yep. So this is the end of part one. We start getting into a conversation after this about the uncertainty of life post-tenure and how he navigates choices and also about his experiences learning to become a leader within a faculty position. So wait for the next podcast coming out. You'll really enjoy it. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.